General Baptist Ministries has been called by God to exist for the church. We aren't here so General Baptist can help us do ministry. We're here to help the church do ministry and to fulfill its commission by God to make disciples of all nations and preach the good news to every man, woman, boy, and girl. We partner with churches because we believe that we can do more together than any one person or church can do alone. I'm Danny Donovan, President of General Baptist Ministries, and I want to welcome you to this episode of Doing Together. Doing Together is about sharing the ways that General Baptists partner together so that your church can fulfill its calling. We have a special Holy Week edition of the podcast for you today. When this episode drops, we will be in the midst of the week between Palm Sunday and Easter. And as such, we wanted to reflect today on the work of Jesus for us as we see it presented to us year after year during Holy Week. It is the heart of the gospel that General Baptists believe are for all people. As I thought about who I wanted to have as a guest on this episode, I immediately wanted to have Douglas Lau join us. And through only a little convincing, he agreed. Douglas Lau is the professor of New Testament at at the Chapman Seminary at Oakland City University, and he holds a PhD in New Testament from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Lau has served at OCU for more than 30 years as a professor and during two different periods as dean of the seminary. He is a lifelong General General Baptist, originally hailing from Bernie, Missouri, and is a current member of the First General Baptist Church of Oakland City. Personally, Douglas is one of my most treasured friends. I credit him with opening up my mind to the possibility of advanced academic study, and that has shaped my entire professional life. It was in my very first semester at Oakland City as a student when I took Dr. Lyle's Old Testament I course, and I got a glimpse of the wonder of academic study of theology. I know countless students whose lives and ministries have been impacted by Douglas's faithfulness in the classroom and the high standards that he brings to study. I could keep going, but at this time, I just want to welcome Dr. Douglas Lau to Doing Together. Thank you, Danny, and for those kind words. That's that's meaningful to me. Well, it is, uh, it's good to be able to, to talk today about, um, about Jesus and the work that he, he accomplishes for us, to talk about uh, Holy Week and the significance of uh, what we are celebrating at this time of the year. Uh, but before we jump into that, I want to just ask a, a couple of questions personally for you. Um, you've, you've spent all of your life and all of your professional life in the academy, though you have also pastored churches as well in your, uh, in your career. Um, but why is it that you, you've chosen to spend your life in the context of the university setting in the academy? I think, I think I'm suited for it. Perhaps you might even say um, prepared for it. My, my grandmother used to, to encourage me to read the Bible, and so I would, I would pass that on to the audience, uh, the effect. Although I'm not having quite the, quite the same uh, with my six-year-old granddaughter, but at any rate, studying the Bible, the Bernie General Baptist Church provided me very good Sunday school teachers. A uh, very good church experience, and so that that type of study has always been with me. But I think I'm I'm particularly suited for it. I've, I've enjoyed it. I I had a, just a particularly good class in my Old Testament classes last week, looking at Psalm 107, pointing out to the ministerial students the structure there, and and it clicked. They they were seeing things in God's Word they had never seen before because they had never never had anyone guide them into the structure of a psalm. 
and it's it's kind of exciting for them, and it's it's exciting for me to be part of that, pass that on. So uh, academic life is good, but you did mention pastoring a little. I'd, I'd I'd want to say a word about those good Methodists that put up with me as a part-time pastor for several years. It allowed me to hone my skills in the pulpit and and put what I say in the classroom into practice and visitation and funerals and those kinds of things. Um, it's an honor to be a minister. It's an honor to teach. And it just seems, it seems like it's been good for me to be that. Yeah. I, you mentioned Psalm 107 in your class. I'm sure you don't remember this, but in the fall of 1997, that Old Testament class I was mentioning, that was uh, the text you shared with us the very first day of class. Um, 20, uh, 25 years ago whenever we first met. So you, uh, that that's right. Oh, okay. Yeah. You, you did that text that morning and, uh, the structure of it. So yeah, it's, you've, uh, that was been, has been an impactful Psalm in for me along the way as partly a result of that. So that's very good. Um, so how has, if as you say that, that you're suited for this, you're, you've, uh, it's something that God has called you to do um, in your career. But how has your study and teaching impacted your own spiritual life? You know, some folks um, sometimes think that academic study is this dry thing that uh, sucks the life out of uh, the Christian life. Um, I've not experienced that at any level, really. Um, so can you just talk about that? How has your study and teaching impacted your, um, your life as a Christian? That and I, I get paid to read the Bible. That, that's 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 quite a thing. Uh, but my study has always seemed to feed feed my spiritual life rather than than take me from it. I, I do a comparison sometimes with. Uh, I, I suspect gospel singers benefit spiritually from singing gospel, and that's that's what's happened to me. I am mindful that as I teach the text, the text also is addressing me all the time. And therefore, to whom much is given, much is required. Um, I think about those, in answering that question, I think about those professors in, in state state universities who don't believe the Bible that they teach or something to that effect, that it's not God's word to them. And I think what what a horrible situation that, that has to be. I don't know how you'd get out of it insofar as the very word that calls us to Christ is not a word that you can really hear in that way. It'd be like, again, to use my gospel singer, uh, the person who no longer believes what they're singing, but they keep on singing. At any rate, that's that's not my story. My my study has never uh, never taken me away, but I I think I've been enriched by it. That's 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 what I don't I don't want to say turns me on, but it 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 does excite me to to do to do what that is. Yeah, mm. yeah. They're different. Uh, some of us who have different you know gifts, different ways of connecting with um, with the Christian life. Some of those are intellectual and some of those are emotional, right? And um, for people like you and I, the the study itself can, it's not, it, it can become an end in itself, so to speak. I just, I love studying, right? I love reading. Yeah. But at the same time, because of what we study and what we've uh, spent our time uh, engaging with, it, it changes who we are. I've 
I'm a better, more faithful Christian because I have put myself under the discipline of that kind of study in my life, I think. So this uh, podcast is going to drop during Holy Week. Um, so why do, you think, why do you think that Holy Days, that, that you could call holidays, you know, we get the word there, why do you think that those are important, the, the Christian calendar in general, the rhythms of it, the, the discipline? What, what do you, why do you think that uh, that's something that, that we should engage with? I would say that we, we have a historical religion. Uh, this is no mere philosophy. This, this, is, this is God interacting in history and in particular interacting in the life of Jesus Christ. So it's it's part of our history, and the the other thing is that as people, we we have multiple calendars. We have a national calendar that's going to dictate when we have Thanksgiving dinner and when we do the Fourth of July and how we celebrate January one. We have uh, folks whose kids are still in school; they have school calendars and they know all about their uh, events. We our lives are governed by those calendars. We have we have family calendars. We know when Grandma's birthday is and all the dates. That we have to do this and that. For Christians to maintain a Christian calendar, it just simply means that there are times that we are reminded of who we are, just like when Grandma's birthday is and how we got to respond. The, the Holy Week calendar is the supreme supreme week for us in terms of thinking about Jesus's mission and his crucifixion and resurrection. It's it's the historical founding events. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's appropriate for us to, to be called by this calendar to be reminded. But we do it every week. Uh, yeah. There's a question that folks miss on my tests all the time. I ask them why they go to church on Sunday. Why do we do this on Sunday? And they always answer because we're commanded to rest one day of the week. And I said, no, no, I don't want that answer. I, I, although I keep Sabbath really carefully. But I, the point is, we go to church because of Easter. Yeah, We have a historical remembrance every week that he is raised and Lord. And so that's, that's just really... Uh, each each of our Sundays are a little Easter, yep. and so that's that's the historical tie there. Yeah, here in the in the ministries building, we we're in the middle also of a forty days of prayer, which just happens to coincide with Lent and uh, the traditional Christian calendar. And I I pointed out to them that Lent technically is longer than forty days because the Sundays are okay. they don't count. Um, Lent is actually, you know, 45 days long because the Sundays are not fast days. They're always feast days because they're all little feasts of the resurrection. And I don't think a lot of people have ever done the math. Maybe they, they, oh, Lent's 40 days long. Well, actually, Lent's longer than that. And, and Sundays are, are different. So, always. yeah, uh, I'm, I'm also, as I think about like the, um, ideas of the, the rhythm of it all, um, We'll, we'll probably get into this some more, but there is some sense of which when we get to, to celebrate these days, we also are getting to, to reenact in various ways. We get to remember in a, you know, in a very uh, Jewish Hebraic sense, we get to relive um, the stories themselves that we now are getting caught up into. And, and um, I think that that's, that's an important part of, like you said, of being a part of a historical religion that is based in historical events, not just in ideas. 
participate consciously in the life of Christ. That's that's part of what our salvation with a risen Savior allows us to have. And our our just our thoughts and our memories are we are directed uh, by the Easter, the Good Friday through Easter uh, observance to be sure that we're embracing this. And I, I don't know if you're if if the if our GB praying over these last forty days was consciously picked for the, the Lenten season or not. But the, the very fact that I have a season, um, and when I was at the Methodist church, I, 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 I picked up on their traditions. We used the ashes and the whole thing on Ash Wednesday. Because I, I got to talk to them about, yes, you're going to die. Our, our, this, our lives look that way. And yes, we need to face temptation and we need to decide that we're going to follow Christ all the way to the cross. And while that needs to be our theme lots and lots of times, it's, it is our theme in Lent. And if I can go back to the, the, the grandmother's birthday, we, we love her all year long. Yeah. But it's the birthday that we really, we, we really stop and pause. And so now with, with Holy Week, we, we stop and pause. And, and making the break, uh, we once had a, a Catholic priest uh, preach during Lent and chapel. That's years and years ago. And we sang the hallelujahs. And he commented that in, in Catholic tradition, you don't say you don't you don't sing or say hallelujah uh, in the mass. And uh, I thought to myself, well, shoot, that's we sing hallelujah every Sunday because we, we have to. It's an Easter. But yeah, um, yeah they only do the hallelujahs yeah. in, in, in Easter tide. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Most of our Baptist folks probably don't know that Easter lasts longer than a day, too. Yeah, it's, and that's too bad. We got the fifty great days. Fifty uh, days. Yeah. So. Yeah, we tend we tend yeah. to. We, you talked about our different calendars. We tend to follow the American uh, version of such things that. Um, oh. Instead of the Christian one, most of the time I. I've, oh yeah, we're constantly threatened there. The we 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 start our advent right after the October thirty first now because we got to get the sales in. It's secular America telling us yeah. when Advent starts. <laughs> So we're buying Christmas presents and while they're putting up holiday, I mean, Halloween uh, decorations. But at any rate, we, yeah. yeah. We could digress for a while there probably. Yeah, we're digressing. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So as we, we talk about this, um, we're focusing on the story of Jesus in particular in, the, in, Holy, in Holy Week. We're, we're talking about a specific week in the life of Jesus. Um, how do you think that, that focus on the story of Jesus balances our beliefs with the story. So, um, you know, I would point out that there is, there is at least a idea of a distinction between the story of Jesus going to the cross, which is a historical thing that everyone can, can see. And then the belief that comes out of that, that, that accomplishes salvation for us. So why do you think that, do you think that this, that the observance of Holy Week, uh, putting us into the story, do you see that as something that balances with our the, our theology? It, it, it certainly must. It, it, it should have to. Um, what, we, what we are doing with our lives is based on what that historical event was. When I, when I first heard you, you word that that way, I... I remember an old General Baptist preacher in my my home church. His name was John Coates. He he was mm-hmm. part of a family of preachers whose last name was Coates. Yep. 
And when he would preach and sometimes pray, he would talk about that the devil could never take us any further back than our conversion. And uh, I, I, I would second that prayer or thought by saying he can never take us back any farther than the historical event of, of crucifixion. My sins were paid for right then. And so I grant you that that is his story and his life, but it impacts us. And, and not just simply to concentrate on Good Friday, but also Easter. The, f- the fact that the disciples could continue their relationship with Jesus, those 11 got to meet the master again as a historical event, not just a hope, not just a, a faith. And then likewise, then with us, as we embrace uh, the resurrection life, we, we come out of the waters of baptism or have that sense of the forgiveness and the joy that Stinson talked about. That's a, that's a genuine participation in the ongoing life of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's the rest of the Easter story. And that's, that's very good. Right. Uh, think about first Peter one, the, uh, we have a new birth. To use the, yeah. the terminology, um, yeah. new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Our new birth and his resurrection are essentially one act. Yeah, and it's and it's an emotional as well as an intellectual tie. My my home church never had problems with emotional faith and expression, but as as First Peter continues, mm-hmm. uh, without seeing him, you love him. Yep, that's right. And uh, you you had this. This is a genuine aspect of being born again. This this love for a person that you quote historically never met, mm-hmm. but for all the great purposes of great history, you've met him. Yeah. We have met him and lived with him, and it's yeah. It is it's very good. Yeah. Um, so we talk about this story, but um, can you talk a little bit more? Um, there's a there's a whole history of theology also that stands behind what this does. So can you talk a little bit about what is it you think that Jesus is accomplishing for us and for our salvation, to quote the Nicene Creed there? So what he has accomplished is that he has brought us back to God. And so if you, if you, if you want to, to talk about the forgiveness and cleansing of a, of a sinner's sin, then we've got the atoning sacrifice of Christ that is for your sins and for the sins of the world. You, you've got that message of Hebrews and Romans 3. This, this cross does that. But the ongoing uh, Easter story, then I, I participate in God's own life I participate in Christ's life because of what he's done. He holds my hand, as it were, as I, as I walk uh, in God's presence, showing the way, allowing it to happen. It's the witness of the apostles that we have come to know God through Jesus Christ, and that's because he lives, and that, that, that helps us. All the aspects of our lives can be channeled back into that story in some way. Perhaps it's the, um, we, we think of Gethsemane. And when we're, we're paused and we think about, okay, not your will, but mine be done, this utter commitment to serve. Uh, we, we think about the Jesus who taught us to carry our cross and, and on all those sad times. Uh, we, are, we are reminded to the, of the prayer of um, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And we think of the crucifixion where he expresses that kind of thought of rather forgive them. Those are the, the kind of the human side. The, the resurrection side is also there, the joy. If we've got 
joy in our church, joy in our life. It, it comes from a joy that passes human understanding, so to speak, to paraphrase Paul, because it's not self-produced or make-believe, but grounded in what, what Christ is doing. When you, when you ask me about, um, let's see, what Jesus is accomplishing, it is that reunion with God and that maintaining of that union with God. Uh, and here we can add the spirit that he breathes on his disciples in John, that final chapter, next to final chapter. And receive the spirit and you, you have mission, you have purpose. It's um, the, the joke always is uh, Easter Sunday will be full of, full of people coming and visit. Next Sunday they won't. Uh, but the but the reality is is that the joy and the power of of Easter stays with it. It, it is that gift. So there's there is that joy to it. So um, the the work of Jesus and all these ways to impact all aspects of our lives. This story subsumes all of, all of our lives in some ways. Um, but is there? Do you think there's things that we kind of miss in our common proclamation? of the story? Are there things that you think that we what we should emphasize that maybe we don't emphasize sometimes? I would, I would accent what Paul does with Ephesians and Colossians, where the power of Christ that has saved us is the power that has now raised us up to live with him. Uh, if you'll if you'll look at how that that is worded in, in Ephesians and also in Colossians, your life is now hidden with God. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're when he returns, your life will be revealed. But even more, when when Paul prays in Ephesians that the church people can know God's power, can know God's power, he he goes on and says, "This is the very power he used, not just when he raised Jesus, but when he brought him so that he sits at the right hand of the Father." Yeah. Uh, and so the the proclamation, if if the proclamation needs, I think, to include clarity about the living power of Christ in the church now while we wait his wait his return. Right. We will we will talk about the cross, uh, but we need to do like in uh, like in old time schools, we need to do the three R's. The three R's is risen, ruling, and returning. Mm-hmm. And we keep those three R's. And that's that's part of what he has accomplished by being Lord. When God raised him from the dead and made him Lord, then we have a perfect David and a perfect, uh, a lasting David. And if if the Lord is on his throne, everything's okay with me kind of thing. I'm reminded of the General Baptist statements of faith about the, redemp- the redemptive work of Christ, which we often, um, what you're saying here, we, we often just take it, take it as the, the cross is what provides redemption, but you know, going back to even at the very beginning in General Baptist, uh, we have said that it is the life, death, resurrection, um, ascension, and intercession, right? Yeah. All, yeah. all of the above that are, are that are the redeeming work of, of Christ that, that we are able to enjoy. Um, and yeah, I've often wondered why the resu- why the the intercession part, but I've I've come to th- think that it, it just simply is because it's an ongoing work. The salvation is not a past event. It is an ongoing thing that still waits its consummation in the resurrection, right? I think so. Intercession is highlighted in Romans 8 and, of course, in, in the Hebrew letter that he makes intercession. Right. And, and it, even in that moment, we see 
the ongoing love that our Lord has for us being put into practice, if you want to put it that way. We, all of us who engage in intercession for our families and friends, and we name them by name, we, we, we do that not because we think God doesn't love them or God doesn't know anything about them. It's just what a loved person does. You, you, you got to pray for your grandkids. And so I, I, think of the, I think of the son praying for us, praying for me. Um, that, that is just something we want to highlight. Now, I'm not going to put you on the spot with my General Baptist Heritage class, but you remember when I would do that article and I would say, the only thing missing here is a reference to the second coming. Yeah. Because we save the second coming to, to the last article. Of right. course, that's the natural place to put it. Right. But his, his accomplishing of salvation won't be done until, right. until death is defeated and we're raised and we participate in that new creation life. As long as we're here, we, we will have the kind of suffering that he experienced on the cross insofar as he was human and experienced that suffering. So our, our salvation awaits in fullness. I still think we can talk about joy and peace. I, I, I know we have to talk about temptation and suffering, but again, we're participating in the life of the one who this week uh, did those things. Yeah, I've, I've often thought about, does the, the statement about quote-unquote last things, uh, statement of faith number 10 in our statements of faith now, uh, should, it, should it be moved up to be uh, actually... Statement of faith number five, but we got that okay. whole assurance and endurance thing. We got to stick close to. Well, yes, salvation. we have to keep to the order. Yeah. But it would have been nice to have something about we await his glorious return. Yeah. Uh, there in there in Article Four. Yeah. So yeah, a few years ago, I was invited to be on a panel there in Evansville to talk about what happens after you die, and uh, we started. You know, it was a. You know, it starts. It sounds like a. a, a Tired joke because it was like um, a Buddhist, um, sorry, a Hindu, a Jewish rabbi, a doctor, and uh, the, a Baptist. You know, go into a uh, sit on a panel together and talk about what happens when you die. And I was the I was the Christian representative there, and uh, the person that was moderating at one point. I talked about resurrection. I'm in terms of the Christian hope, is you know, in terms of what happens after you die, it's it's all tied up in resurrection. And the moderator said, "Well, so we all basically all agree that, you know, um, God's doing something for us, and that when we die, we'll be with God." And I'm like, "No, that's not what I said. I said resurrection, and nobody else here agrees with me on this. This is a Christian thing. Uh, this is what we believe salvation looks like, and." Not, not anything less than that. So. Yes, the tomb is empty. The tomb there is, is a physical. There's a physical transformation, yep. but the physicality remains. Yep. Uh, N.T. Wright in his uh, huge 700-page book on the resurrection of the Son of God yeah. wanted to stress uh, correctly that this is an affirmation of our bodily existence, and that. We are who we are, and that is that is us, and we are raised. However transformed the resurrected body of Jesus was, it was that body transformed. And so that's a that's a powerful statement about creation, about yeah. the physicality being good and the hope that we have. Yeah. Um so do as you um how do you think that the shape of the story of Jesus 
should we, we've already kind of talked about this to some level, but if you anything else you want to say about how do you think that the story of Jesus we see um, portrayed to us here, how does it shape our Christian life? How does it sh- should it shape the way that we go about um, the work that we do, the life that we live now? To address that question, I'd, I, I'd, I'd like us to, to go back and, and think about the, the lament psalms. This, this is a particularly odd way for maybe to answer your question. The other Wednesday night, I, I, took, I, I took my Wednesday night Bible study group that I have at the GB Church. And, of course, we did the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, mm-hmm. it's the one line that Jesus says in Matthew and Mark from the cross. The only, the only line those gospels want us to hear. And having having said it, I, I then said, look how the gospel makes reference to Psalm 22, from which that line comes, at different places uh, earlier in the story uh, of, of the passion of Jesus. And the Wednesday night study was just simply a, a look at Psalm 22, but it was a, a way of affirming, affirming the laments. The, the, lament, the lament psalms uh, in the in the Old Testament, those those are psalms of suffering. Usually, it's it's often individual, where a righteous man simply says, "Man, I'm I've got opposition, or I've got sickness, I've got enemies, and they're killing me. I I need God to I need God. God, you need to react. Uh, they yeah. can be very impatient. God, hastily do something for me, because this isn't right. Because I've been faithful to you, or I have sinned, I've asked you for this thing needs to be changed, needs to be changed in a hurry. And um, the lament psalms, by using those lament psalms to describe Jesus, I'm, I'm getting the clarity of how much our quote suffering in life is so truly Jobian, so truly out of place from what what we are in in terms of what God has said is we're beloved and we're being redeemed, and we're saved. And, he, he cares for us, and yet we experience life, and we can do the lament psalms. And Jesus, so embracing this human life, ends up praying the lament psalms, yeah. even to that most classic one of my God, my God, which is just heartbreaking that the son of Mary, who was faithful, who taught us the Beatitudes, would end up experiencing the depth of human uh separation from God when things just didn't right and your enemies beat you and kill you and they win, they win. And so uh, in response to your question, I, I'm, I'm thinking about how much that characterizes genuinely our Christian lives still. And that reality means that I, I have a hope of winning. I have a future resurrection that's coming to me. But my Lord went through this life and, and died with it, with his enemies triumphant, or so it seemed. And I, I, can emb- I can embrace what will befall me, I think, with that message that I, he, has, he has pointed to God's utter faithfulness. Mm-hmm. God didn't intervene on Good Friday. God most certainly intervened on Easter Sunday morning, and he'll do the same for me. I trust that. And that's, that's exactly right with what you said with the panel. The panel has go with God. It's not physical, but in this physical life, I've served him. I've, I've done what I can. And in this, in this resurrection, I participate in Christ with this same, same hope of, of, of resurrection. Yeah. I've uh, reflected a lot recently about 
how this lives is lived out in the even in the context of like the local church and its life, and uh, thought about how um, the story of Peter, and you know, Peter ends up dying just like Jesus dies in the cogs of the Roman Empire, and you know, looking back and thinking about this the line from uh, Matthew sixteen where Jesus says. To Peter, uh, you know, that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But that same guy ends up getting killed just like Jesus gets killed. I wonder, I've wondered about how Peter felt about that at the end of his life as he goes to die at Nero's circus, right? And um, did, he, did he look back and go, was this worth it? Did, did this matter kind of a thing? But... Um, Whenever you start taking the long view of what God has done, the the long view of how resurrection um, ultimately comes to bear through the life even of the church, we recognize that what Peter did did it mattered, and it, it mattered. and it and it and it still has life. Yeah, and what what we do matter. Yeah. Uh, when when Jesus does the blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, and the and the Christians we we hear this. We, we affirm it. Blessed are the meek. But we certainly live in a society, and all human societies are like this, where we don't think that the meek are blessed. We right. think the meek are not blessed. It's, so we have a counterintuitive uh, statement that the meek will inherit the earth. And, and to go back to the Psalms, uh, you, you encounter that in the Psalms. Jesus, Jesus is simply doing a beatitude based on a psalm there, where yeah. it basically says the meek shall inherit the land. The needy shall not always be forsaken. And all those upbeat, non-lament kind of psalms talk about the faithfulness of God. And we affirm that faithfulness against all kinds of evidence to the contrary all the time. And perhaps we do often waver when, when, the, when the pain gets really, really hard. But we don't always. Christian people are some of the most resilient people on earth. And they are resilient precisely because. They have a faith in God that transcends what they see in the face of terrible losses of loved ones and family and hopes and dreams. But they are resilient, and they're resilient because they they have a God they think will be faithful to them, and He is. And he is. He is. He is. Yeah. So, uh, kind of shifting gears a little bit, what do you think the story of Jesus says about the very nature of God? We've kind of touched on that a little bit, but what do you think that does it say about the idea, for example, the story of Jesus say about an idea like um, the idea of God's sovereignty, you know, the nature of God in that regard? That's a that's a particularly uh, explosive idea, the idea of God's sovereignty for uh, Arminians. So, how do, how do you how do you th- what do you think about that? Uh, if you look at the pictures of sovereignty that you have with with the the story, uh, I'd, I'd push it. I'd push it back before creation. I would do Trinitarian stuff here with this. God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together sovereignly decided that they would create, and what they would create, they would redeem. What they would redeem, they would complete and consecrate and make holy. And they decided, knowing good and well, what it would mean for God Almighty, each for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to do this thing. And in that 
type of sovereign choice. They are they are acting not because they're forced to. Creation is free. He he does this out of love, not in order to be alone, because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always knew love, always experienced love among themselves. But in the overflowing of that love and in the, the divine sovereign act, he created. And here it comes. And so the son comes and the father doesn't intervene on Good Friday. Uh, the father intervenes. The son shares the spirit on that Easter Sunday morning in, in John 20. Uh, the spirit now lives and, and controls and moves us. So when I, when I think of sovereign, I think of a God that's in control of what he's made and he'll bring it to pass. But the, the uh, human rebellion that he knew had to be, uh, that would be, was because the way he made us. I, I remember a class, uh, again, it was an Old Testament class. A, a student just simply said, well, after Adam messed up, why didn't he just create somebody else and, and start over again and save it? And I, and I said, you can't create us without us apparently choosing to do what we do. This, this is us doing it. He's not to have a creature that he has made, this, this thing that's in his image is, is to experience this. Um, but to address sovereign, sovereignty, uh, GBs don't need to be afraid of that whatsoever. Right. Because he created us, he chose freely to create a being with free will, of course. He made us like this. Yeah. And he seeks from that being, and he has freely, freely decided that the that the human can respond to him in faith and repentance. And that's the ones that he that he likes. That it's that classic story where Abraham wonders about uh wonders at God's statement that God is going to bless him. And Abraham says to himself, well, I just don't need another house in Cancun. I, 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 need, a, I need a son. And uh, all I've got this is this Eliezer guy who's someplace else. And he says, no, you're, and he makes, Abraham goes outside. He's an old man. He goes outside and looks outside his tent and sees the stars. And God says, uh, I'm, going, I'm going to give you uh, children like these stars. And it says that Abraham believed it. And I, and in my mind, in my mind's eye, I see God saying, "That old, that old man believes me just because I said it." And the Scripture says, "He counted, he counted that faith as being right in God's eyes, being righteous." And so, this is how God has decided from before creation to save humanity. So, for all us old guys who just simply believe what He says, yeah. that's this, this is this is going, and the transformation comes by Spirit and. We continue to to build, but it's it's a sovereign God that has chosen yeah. to to allow us to be people that trust Him, to become people of faith. Right. I, yeah, I've, I've I've often wondered if if God is not sovereign enough to choose to. Um, there's some amount of we would say self limitation that comes to. Oh. That's yeah. uh, a language yeah, we usually use. That a God is that is not able to limit Himself is God that is not as sovereign as one who can. Yeah. Yes, we can do that that way very much. If if nothing else, we see the sovereignty of God. If Christ is God, that He is, He certainly limited Himself when He came. He He, he made Himself into someone who has to sleep because He gets tired in the back of a boat, uh, and so that's that's a sovereign choice of limitation. 
Uh, Our God never sleeps, the psalm says, but Jesus got tired and sleeps. Right. And so that's that's all part of the story, too. Yeah. I've often saved all, you know, to sovereignly choose to provide a universal atonement, to sovereignly choose to try to save us all. This 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 is what we what we proclaim that God has done in Christ. And that that has to be the way it that's what's been revealed in Scripture is the way it is. Because this is real. This is no playing out a script that he's going to uh, order. And I appreciate the sovereignty folks who who really want to have confidence. But I think that the confidence is is in God's love and letting him do what he has to do to save us and call us into fellowship with him through spirit. And that's that's not exactly what they mean, I think, when they're speaking about God's uh, particular kind of oversight right. of our spiritual lives. I think of the idea of, the, you know, you think about sovereignty. What does sovereignty look like for in Christian understanding? Sovereignty looks like the cross of Jesus. That that picture, that is what Christian the, the Christian God's power looks like. Is a power that is, you know, self-giving, overflowing with love. Uh, Jesus is not only uh, the cross. Whenever you see Jesus on the cross, that's not just the place where Jesus dies. That's also the place where He rules the world. And um, I'm reminded of I'm reminded of the line from Bonhoeffer that says that the cross is a reversal of what the religious man expects of God. That we expect a a God that's powerful and authoritarian and what we get is a God who gives himself and that is an act of sovereignty itself. Yeah. And that's why the gospel of John can talk about Jesus being lifted up mm-hmm. and drawing all men to him. And it's that great mix of the cross being transformed into a moment of glorious obedience as well as glorious accomplishment. It is finished. And that's a sovereign choice. And it and it's manifested in weakness and death, so that's that's that is that's that's moving, and that's where we are too. It is as counterintuitive as saying, "Blessed are the meek, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, blessed are those who are." And there's there's a promise about God's faithfulness there. We act like God, yeah. in that. Hmm. All right. Well, I think we actually have covered all of our planned questions. So okay, well, can I can I let you not go quite so fast? Sure. Uh, about GBs and atonement, you mentioned sovereignty. So let me let me stay with it just a moment. We've got a message on Easter that is hope for everyone, yeah. genuinely, genuinely hope for everyone, and um, and I know that the 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 famous uh, acronym TULIP has limited atonement in the middle of it. And they don't, they're getting away from it. Uh, Some of their uh, Calvinist theologians want to get away from limited atonement because they know it's not biblical. Right. So they want to reword it in some way so that it's not so self-evident. But whatever they do to reword it, they cannot, they, they, their system really does demand of them some sense of limited atonement. And so they're kind of stuck with it. And we're proclaiming that which is, uh, good news for everybody. That cross is good news for everybody, and the resurrection is good news for everybody. And there's a there's a section of Thomas Helwes that I that I reviewed before we talked today. Yeah. 
And it's it's a it's a small pamphlet that he produced in 1611 uh, after his statement of faith, where he where he says, and I'm I'm going to paraphrase rather than present his whole argument. He's rather wordy. Uh, you, a, a man has to have hope that there's hope for him. Yeah. And the idea that there are some for whom Christ did not die, there are some that God has passed over and never never intended to save. Uh, if if a person becomes convinced that that is the truth of everything about life, then there's no reason to think that he has a chance. But you make the proclamation that those who have faith and believe and repent uh, has a God who is reaching out to them first and includes them simply because he made them. God created them. And everything that God has created, he has sought to redeem. Yeah. And to make that kind of drive home thing is that... Uh, if you truly believe God is only saving those whom he's only chosen, it, it confronts you with the idea, well, what about my, again, my grandkids? What, what about my grand, pastor, can you pray for my grandkids that they'll get, they'll get saved? And that guy say, yeah, sure I will. But in the back of the mind, if God hadn't chosen them, I, I, I don't know much what I'm doing here praying. I'd, I'd, run, I'd run and get me a general Baptist preacher who could pray for my grandkids because he knows he's got the hope, that the hope for all of them is real. Yeah. And he can pray with, without thinking twice yeah. about the nature of that. Right. I, I'm, uh, you know, I think about this, the, um, the, the, it was the debate that Stinson had with yeah. Joel Hume, who was um, a regular Baptist there in Southern Indiana. I guess it was, I remember right, it was in Poseyville uh, where the, uh, the, he was that. So, but they the debate the very last part of the debate that was published you can actually go out on the internet people can find it if they want to look it up very last uh, response there is by Stinson at the end of that written uh, form of the debate and he talks about the story of a a young man that he was basically talking to about his salvation and the young man believed in unconditional election and therefore um, he believed that he was either elect or not elect, and that yeah. therefore he was unconcerned with his own soul. And yeah. Stinson basically says, this is why I can't be a Calvinist. I can't be a Calvinist because then the gospel doesn't have anything to, to address people like this. And um, it's instead, it's something that is for all, that we all have hope in, and we all have, um, we all have a, a you know, the, like you said, the, we, we see in what Jesus accomplishes something that addresses all of us and not just some some folks as a result. Stinson, Stinson uses that story and it's it's a personal story. Yeah. Uh, and he uses it at the very end of that debate. He thinks that's a he thinks that's a finisher for his yeah, debate. That's going to win the day. It's a slam dunk. He goes to this this younger man who is who is dying. And the and the the dying man simply doesn't think he needs to do a thing in response. It's either already settled, and it's a and it is to Stinson a horrifying as well as yeah. obviously wrong approach. And and even I think Calvinists would would wonder at the, the at the young man's. But if you tell folks that, that's how they're going to sometimes act. And so there's there is Stinson saying, I couldn't reach him with the gospel because he had his blinders up. And Helwes is making the point of a man has to have hope. Uh, and this is fundamentally what, what the Easter message is, is, is that hope. We really do honor 
John 3.16. God so loved the world. Uh, and Helwes mentions John 3.16 in that little pamphlet where he's simply saying, we mustn't put a restraint or uh, a limit on what John 3.16 is saying. There's, there's, there's no way that we can honor that verse without talking about the sovereign God accomplishing what his heart wants him to accomplish. And that is the offer of universal provision for, for the lost of the world. So it's a, it's a great week to celebrate. Yeah. Uh, we're honored to be able to do it. Very good. Well, uh, Douglas, thank you for, for joining me in the conversation today. Well, thank you for having me. I hope that the wonder of Christ's work that we celebrate this will draw you as our, our listeners today near to Jesus and also challenge you to live out your hope in your community. If you haven't already done so, I want to invite you to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to access our, con our content, and please leave us a review. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you on the next episode of Doing Together. Doing Together.